In London, this is the Economist. You're listening to Tasting Menu, a feast of our favourite stories from across our coverage. I'm Rob Gifford, and on your menu this week, how much can your taste in music reveal about your personality? The disruptors unsettling the undertaking business, and the Swiss peasant who revolutionised London's high society. But we start with our cover, which this week depicts a little green man. No, he's not the herald of some extraterrestrial visitation, but of something that until recently seemed almost as unlikely, the arrival of cool Germany. The country is entering a new era, diverse, open and hip even. With the right leadership, we argued, it could be a model for the West. Since the fall of the Berlin Wall, the ample mention, the jaunty, behatted, little traffic light man of communist East Germany, has escaped his dictatorial roots to become a kooky icon of Germany's trendy capital. Tourists pose with life-size models and snap up memorabilia in souvenir shops. At first glance, Ample mentions new street cred seems at odds with Germany's international reputation for sober, sensible economics and cautious coalition politics. But take the long view, and the Ample mention captures how Germany is changing. Post-war German history has moved in cycles of about 25 years. First came the era of Reconstruction, Then, from the late 1960s, the Federal Republic began to reckon frankly with its war guilt. In its latest phase, from the 1990s, Germany has reunified, become a normal country again, and shed some of the fetters of its past. And now, Germany seems to be going through a Teutonic shift and changing its identity once again. The biggest change comes from Mrs Merkel's open-door policy towards refugees – which brought in 1.2 million new migrants in 2015 to 2016. A more inclusive identity is emerging, a country that waited until 2000 to extend citizenship to many of those without native ancestors increasingly defines nationality in civic rather than ethnic terms. As Germany's social horizons expand, the country's politics are in turn becoming more outward-looking. Last month, its new economy minister helped to persuade the White House to suspend planned steel and aluminium duties on the EU and other allies. At last year's G20 summit in Hamburg, the Chancellor advanced a compact with Africa to accelerate development and improve governance on the continent. Though overhyped and underfunded, it gives a hint of the convening and stabilising role a normalised Germany could yet play. In the throes of this transformation, the future of Europe's biggest economy will rest on the shoulders of whoever succeeds Angela Merkel. Her uncontentious, reactive style has suited her times, but a new Germany requires a different type of Chancellor, proactive at home, ambitious abroad, and with the skills to persuade German voters of the case for this ambition. With the right leadership, there is little doubt about the country's capability. Like the ample mention, It has a knack for reinvention. For a closer encounter with the new Germany, read the special report in this week's Economist. You can find us in all good newsagents and, of course, online. You can also subscribe for physical or digital access to all our journalism. Just go to subscriptions.economist.com. Germany's current metamorphosis is not without risk. Our guest on this week's episode of The Economist Asks explained how America is having a metamorphosis of its own. Amy Chua, known for her book about tiger mothers, is now the author of Political Tribes, Group Instinct and the Fate of Nations. It used to be whites in America dominated the country economically, politically and culturally. And when a group is so dominant, 
all kinds of terrible things can happen. You get oppression and slavery, but they're kind of comfortably dominant. What's happened right now is with the massive demographic change in the United States, with whites about to lose their majority status by the predictions are about 2044. Now, every group in America feels threatened. So when people feel threatened, they kind of hunker down. And this is part of why you see identity politics on both sides of the political spectrum right now. For the first time in recent history, there were open white nationalist movements. And you can hear that interview in full by subscribing to Economist Radio on your podcast app, whether you're a member of the Apple or the Android tribe. We signal our tribal allegiances in myriad different ways, from the clothes we wear to the music we listen to. But how much of what we like is free choice, and how much is dictated by our personalities, whether we like it or not? A major new study suggests that when it comes to music, we don't have as much agency as we'd like to think. On Babbage, our science and technology podcast, Matt Kaplan had the details. What they found was that there were certain personality types that liked certain things. So, for example, people who rated highly on openness had an appreciation for sophisticated music. Extracts had a, had a definite preference for unpretentious music, which is defined as an uncomplicated, relaxing, and acoustic. What's really interesting is those who scored on high on agreeableness uh, showed an appreciation of pretty much everything, which makes sense. If you're really agreeable, then you're going to say, oh, yeah, that sounds good. That sounds good, too. Yeah, sure, why not? And those with high levels of neuroticism uh, behave exactly the reverse, rating everything as meh, you know, not that enjoyable. And for the latest science and tech news every week, subscribe to Babbage. It's published every Tuesday. When it comes to how you leave this world, it used to be that the music was the only bit you got to choose. But as Sasha Nauter told The Week Ahead, our current affairs show, disruptors in the funeral business are now offering a bewildering array of options. There are endless fascinating startups working on things such as balloon flights to space with ashes or QR codes you can stick onto tombstones. Now, of course, these things are not common yet, but they are altogether starting to change the industry and are certainly a threat to, let's say, the more traditional undertaker. The Week Ahead is published every Friday. We turn back to this week's paper now. The Middle East and Africa section turned up the heat on one of Africa's staple foodstuffs, maize. In some countries in the continent's south and east, it provides half of all calories consumed. It's what our forefathers used to eat, says Kennedy Kapami, a Zambian phone salesman, rolling a ball of stiff maize porridge in his fingers. But Mr. Kapami is wrong about his forefathers, or at least his distant ones. Until the 20th century, they mostly ate sorghum and millet. Maize came to Africa with the colonists. And the plant has outlasted its original importers. Portuguese slavers were the first to bring it to Africa. Sometimes the crop took roundabout roots. Swahili speakers know it as Mahindi of India. Bambara speakers in Mali call it Kaba, after the sacred site in Mecca, from where pilgrims returned with exotic foods. In Zambia, the entrance to the farmers' union is held up by two columns sculpted into cobs. But the maize monopoly puts both farmers and consumers at risk, so the race is on to find an equally delicious alternative. Using land to grow a single crop increases the risk from pests and weather, and a diverse diet is more nutritious. In the gleaming labs of the Zambia Agricultural Research Institute, a government agency, 
Researchers nurture shoots of disease-resistant cassava in test tubes. They have cultivated bitter-tasting sorghum, which birds don't like, but brewers do. Now the real challenge will be changing people's tastes. Mr. Kapami has never tried sorghum or millet. As they say in neighboring Malawi, maize is life. Sticking with our culinary theme, the business pages address the rich world phenomenon of the mail-order meal kit. For those with an embarrassment of everything except time, the reality is that many people are loath to rustle up anything more taxing than a bacon sandwich. Cue the recent emergence of more than 150 companies to make cooking easier. Two of the largest, Blue Apron in America and Germany's Hello Fresh, deliver boxes of pre-proportioned ingredients and easy-to-follow recipes to doorsteps worldwide for a fee of around $60 a week. Since these schemes remove the need to visit an actual shop for ingredients, supermarkets are hungry for their share. Instead of enrolling customers in a weekly menu of meals, supermarkets offer in-store kits on a day-by-day basis. This neatly sidesteps the subscription company's main problem: retention. HelloFresh doubled its customers to 890,000 last year, as well as the number of delivered meals to 20 million. But 90% of its American clients defect after a year. Like Blue Apron, HelloFresh is not profitable and spends a lot on marketing and promotional discounts to acquire subscribers. Mr. McCarthy estimates that each new client costs the company $94. Blue Apron shells out $84. Some subscription services do seem to be biting back. In March, Blue Apron said it plans to sell its kits at selected American retailers this year. But such a large pivot is disconcerting. If even the biggest brand cannot stick to the subscription model, the smaller ones may be in for the chop. Whether your idea of a treat is having your dinner delivered or a quick bacon sandwich on the morning commute, have a listen to this for some vicarious luxury. A review in our books and arts section told the story of the Swiss peasant who brought refinement to London's hotels, a man called Cesar Ritz. As Luke Barr explains in Ritz and Escoffier, at the end of the 19th century, this hotelier, along with Auguste Escoffier, his chef, transformed not just hotels but the lexicon of luxury itself. When you eat a peach melba or drink a grand manier, you have these men to thank. They coined the names, then popularized the concoctions. Ritz himself became not merely a byword for luxury, but the actual word for it. The Oxford Dictionary defines Ritzy as expensively stylish. The two had been hired to overhaul the Savoy, but when they got to London, they were appalled by what they found. This was the greatest city on earth, yet its hotels. Were dismal. Their restaurants were unsophisticated, their kitchens filthy, and their chefs rude, and often drunk. It was a spectacular transformation. The meals were astonishing. They were flavored not merely with the garlic that Escoffier championed. Popular opinion considered it unrefined and repulsive, but with a whiff of fin de siècle extravagance. Johann Strauss and his orchestra were engaged to provide background music. Guests were presented with tiny peach and cherry trees from which they cut the fruit with golden scissors. They were part of a revolution in London's high society. Once the grandest people had hosted their get-togethers at home. Now the Duke d'Orléans, Princess Alexandra, even the Prince of Wales himself 
entertained in Ritz's hotels. For Ritz, it was a triumph. He had been born the son of a Swiss peasant farmer and never forgot the pains of his origins. Quite literally, fearing his peasant feet were too large, he always wore his shoes a half-size too small. Yet what shoes to fill? That's the end of this week's tasting menu, but remember you can hear more of all the stories we've sampled online at economist.com. And we want to hear from you too. Send your musings to radio at economist.com or you can tweet us at Economist Radio. I'm Rob Gifford in London. This is The Economist. 